It is certainly a day to stay close to God. I think I told you the story a couple services ago. When we first moved from Baton Rouge to Knoxville in the early 80s, we went to the famed TVA fair. I don't even know if they still do it. It was kind of famous back then. And I don't, I don't think we'd ever had an experience with East Tennessee Hill people. But that's what goes in the early 80s. That's what would go to the TVA fair. And it was raining. And it was just strange people everywhere you look. This is early 80s. This is East Tennessee. This is fair people. Fair people. Not like even. Fair. And I remember Mama just looking at me and my brother and saying, stay close, boys. Because it's raining. It's a weird place. We took refuge under Kingston Pike Bridge down on some Cumberland or Clinch River. I don't remember. And I remember we saw another family that was normal. And it was like the heavens opened and light shone on both of us. And it was like we took solace that we're in this together. But mama's words, stay close, boys. That's all I needed to hear. Yes, ma'am. That, that, that meant it's about to get wild. It's dangerous. <laughs> but I think that's what the Spirit of God is saying to us today, to us. We were, I was probably seven. We moved to Louisiana. I was six or, uh, from Louisiana, six or seven. So my brother would have been four. And uh, all, you, all the word of the loving parent needed to be was stay close. That meant they understood way more of the dangers present than we did. And when the Lord looks at you and I and says, stay close, that's all you need to know. You don't act like a four-year-old and say, why, why, why? You just say, yes, Lord. Yes, my Lord. Stay close. And that just means if you don't, it could, be, could go rough. So this is a day we stay close to our Lord Jesus Christ. Exodus chapter 32. I'm going to try to hit everything I want to hit this morning and please the Holy Spirit and stay in my lane and not hammer anything. But if you will set your faith strong, it'll be possible. If I miss any of those, it will be totally your fault because I'm not taking any blame or responsibility. Uh, that's what my culture teaches me. Don't take any blame or responsibility for anything you fail at. So I'm going to find somebody to blame, and it's everybody, it's everybody around me. It's not me. So it's your fault. If I grieve God, it's your fault today. <laughs> Exodus 32, famous story. I wrote a big article on it about seven or eight years ago. I'm going to quote some of that to you from memory. But it's the day that we live in. We're going to probably jump to 1 John eventually. 1 John says, these things I've written unto you concerning those that would seduce you. And when 1 John has to say that, and, and he just got done saying, but you have an anointing, but you have an anointing, but you have an anointing, you have an unction, you have an anointing. But I write these things concerning them that seduce you, that John was trying to help God's people not be seduced. And when you walk with God, the seducer has to be very slick because you're not going to follow Satan if he walks in your bedroom wearing a top red hat, looking like a, a demon off of a movie. You're going to say, uh-uh, no, you go, keep on. You've got the wrong house. Go. So when you walk with God or you attend church, the seduction has to be way more slick, and it has to cater to you. And the devil knows that because he follows the church. 
He knows how we think and how we function, even through the American perspective and the American culture. But let's look at a famous story here and, and see what it has to say to us today. Exodus 32, verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered together, uh, they gathered themselves together unto Aaron. I, I always ask the question, what happened to her? Aaron and her were left in charge. H-U-R, not Shem, she, but her, a guy. Why did they gather to Aaron? Two men were left in charge, and Moses said, I'm going up. You guys take care of the camp. These people gathered to Aaron. Now, we know later on in the chapter, it wasn't all of Israel. It was 3,000. Out of millions, that's nothing. But 3,000 rebelling is enough to stop God. You have over a million. Some say as many as two and a half million Israelites here. They're not called Jews till after the Babylonian captivity. But 3,000 is enough to get a whole chapter and a half in the Bible because it stops God's revival. If you want to do the percentage, I don't know what it is. 3,000 out of 2.5 million is next to nothing, but it's enough to anger God and destroy the first set of tab tablets and uh, have another be made. They gathered unto Aaron, and they said unto him, Up, make us gods. Now, in the King James, it says gods, but the Hebrew is Elohim. This is the first word God used to describe himself in Genesis. They say, Up, give us a new Elohim the Almighty. It's a plural. In the Hebrew, it's a plural. We know from Genesis it's plural because God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Even God, when addressing himself in the Genesis account, speaks of himself in plurality. It's the Trinity from Genesis chapter 1. How any church or denomination could be anti-Trinitarian, I have no idea. Even Elohim is plural, mighty ones. So they say in their native tongue, hey, Aaron, up, make us Elohim, for, uh, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, there's your mistake. They were looking as a, at a man who did it, not the real Elohim. We uh, know not what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. Now, it's been taught many times they would not give an offering for the real God, but they'd give an offering for their new God, their fake God, the pseudo-Elohim, the, the, uh, the false Elohim. They would happily sacrifice for the fake, but not for the genuine because everybody's excited when they know the reduced standard is coming. Now remember, these are, these are Egyptian-trained Israelites. They've been in Egypt for 400 years. Their culture is surrounded by idols and false deities. They said, make us Elohim, and here's the, here's the money you need to do it. We'll support this movement. We'll support this cult, the cult of Elohim. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Haran. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, they said, these be thy gods. They said to everybody, this is Elohim. Gods, there again is the pearl, but it's the Hebrew Elohim. Look here, guys, it's Elohim. So the question has always been asked, why a golden calf? Why not a golden jackal or a golden chicken or a golden pig 
But why a golden calf? And the answer is very easy. It lies in the science of Egyptology. The Egyptians had a pantheon of gods, much like the Greeks later would, and then the Romans. And so they had like Horus, and they had Anubis, and they had Osiris. And these were all half man, half gods, head of an eagle, head of a cat, head of a jackal. And, uh, but they also had a god named Apis. And Apis was a cow. And it was the only god out of all of them that was a living god. It was a real-life cow. And he was supposedly conceived with a ray of light. When a ray of light came down and touched a cow, it was divinely conceived. This cow was then taken and put in to a special temple, the temple of Apis, and he was stalled there. So he couldn't move because they said his breath could heal. The breath of Apis healed sickness. And he was also the god of their pantheon that was very generous to foreigners and strangers. He was the god that would deliver. All of this is Jehovah so far in their life. It was just Exodus 15, 15 chapters ago, where he said, I'm the Lord God that heals you. I'm the God that delivered you. I'm the God that will be generous to the stranger. You've been strangers for 400 years. So what we're dealing with is a false Elohim, but when they see the cow, they can relate. Yeah, I can relate. They can relate to all the good things, but they still don't know the real Elohim. But the reason Aaron, they didn't ask him, make us a cow. They said, make us Elohim. And maybe Aaron in his heart said, uh, Elohim is just like Apis. Maybe if I make it as close to them and what they want as possible, they'll be happy with me because Moses is gone and maybe they'll kill me. Either way, Aaron's a man pleaser. He is really a pretty gutless guy. The mountain's on fire. The whole thing's a furnace, and you think it's wise to go back into idolatry and worship the gods. Now remember, what did the thunderbolts kill back in Egypt, the lightning? Because... Every one of those plagues destroyed something that was worshipped by uh, Egypt. It was an attack on their religion, which is wonderful. And I've often said, it's worth mentioning now, I want to go to heaven and I want to see what lightning does to cows. All the cows of Egypt. What does that lightning storm look like? Because you know there's just exploded cooked meat for thousands of acres. And these guys think it's smart. God just killed all the cows. Hey, let's worship one and we'll call him Jesus. This is what we're facing today. We're fabricating another gospel that tickles the ears. To pull earrings out of people's ears, you have to itch their ears. Sounds like 1 Timothy 4. They'll have itching ears. That's actually 2 Timothy. Itching ears. They'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They won't give an offering to the gospel preacher that offends them. They'll give money to the heretic that'll fabricate a false Jesus for them. Oh, I can relate. So that when you ask these guys at the Mount of Horeb, who do you worship? They'll say, we worship Elohim. We give offerings to Elohim. He's been so good to us. He heals us. He was so good to us when we were foreigners in a strange land. He was generous. He delivered us. Yes. Oh, oh, I serve Elohim. You serve Elohim? Let's serve Elohim together. Oh, we might serve Elohim a little differently, but we serve Elohim. Same thing we're facing today. Christians are finding gutless priests who will happily give them the God they want and call him a name he doesn't deserve. These be your Elohim. This is your Elohim. O Israel, 
Notice even these is plural. Here are your gods, but it's just one God. Even the mockery admits the Trinity. Here be your gods, but it's one cow. O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow's a feast to the Lord. Now we have Yahweh. We just doubled down. We went from Elohim to Yahweh, Jehovah. We're really into full-fledged blasphemy. But this is a God that heals. This is the God that's merciful. This is the God that delivers. Yeah, but can that cow make that mountain burn? And can your Jesus, the one that you serve, the one that doesn't require any repentance out of you, can he deliver? Because we, we're really we're watching our nation divide in between, we should say our church is divided into two gods, the genuine and the modified and remember the warning of Matthew 7. Many shall say it to me in that day, Lord, Lord. They served Lord all along, but he said, I don't know who you are. I don't even, I don't recognize you. We did things in your name. Well, not in my name. I mean, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but Jesus is a very common name in the earth. Even to this day, the Hispanics, many are named Jesus, which is Jesus. It's a common name. In the day of Jesus Christ, Jesus was Yeshua, Joshua. Very common name. Just because you say you serve Jesus, don't make it so. You need to keep your nose in this Bible. Keep your nose off of social media. Keep your ears away from the academics and stick with God. The second your academic begins to leave their doctrine of instruction that you're paying for, tune them out. They're morons. Raise your hand or send them an email and say, I pay a tuition for you to educate me. Please stick with the topic I'm paying you for. The classroom says biology. We're supposed to be dissecting frogs. What is what you're talking about got to do with a frog? And eventually just leave. We're watching the church of America divide between a false god and the remnant serve the true and living God. And the split happened a while back. And if you've ever been to Texas, they have what are called CD roads, collector distributors. It's the craziest. Only Texas would come up with something that dumb. But you have all these roads that peel off, and they run parallel, and then you exit. And then somebody merges back on and runs parallel and comes on. And it's the craziest DOT system I think I've ever been a part of. I didn't do any work there, but it's just nuts. But this is how I always like an apostasy, even in the American church, even among our circles. Somewhere along the line, people start exiting. And they don't recognize there's a massive Jersey barrier between them and us. But because we're traveling at the same speed in the same direction, they still think they're with us. By us, I mean the body of Christ. They don't realize that two miles down the road, that CD road's going to peel off and go to hell. But they think because they're with us now, oh, it's starting to slowly, what, what, what? And there's no way to get back on the main line of Christ. That is why we stay with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This book is written at an eighth grade level. That may not be public schooling anymore. This may be like a high school level if you're public school. But this book is supposed to be simple enough for all of us to read it. The problem is Americans are too lazy and their ears given to too many voices in the land. And they're changing the image of our Savior to one that is no Savior. And they still call him Jesus. Let's keep reading. They rose up early on the morrow. Boy, they got so excited about that false Elohim, Yahweh. So excited, they made it to church on time. 
And they offer burnt offerings. They couldn't even do that for Elohim, the real one. But you got, you got one that tickles my ears? Yeah, I'll celebrate and I'll give an offering. And they brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and they rose up to play. They were so excited. They had joy over this new Jesus. Man, never have we met a Jesus like this. Never has there been a Jesus that understood us. Never has there been a Jesus that could relate to what we were going through. You do realize it's made out of gold. It doesn't matter. It's Jesus. Yeah, I know. I know he's golden. He's golden in my heart. Verse 7, And the Lord said unto Moses, Get down, for the people, your people, God doesn't claim them. Those are your kids. <laughs> Those are your kids down there. They, your people, thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Corruption. They corrupted. And they've turned aside quickly out of the way. Uh, they were in the right way, but like that Texan collector distributor road, they turned away. They turned aside hurriedly, as one translation, out of the way which I have commanded them. This thing is simple. The gospel we've received is very simple. Love the Lord Jesus Christ. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Keep his commandments. Do that which is right in his sight. Don't change his doctrine. Study it out. Live clean. Live holy. Turn away from perverts. One of the biggest doctrines of the New Testament is withdraw yourself from perverts. Withdraw yourself from apostates. Withdraw yourself from those that are enemies of the cross. Withdraw yourself from those that don't take God seriously. Don't tolerate them. Don't, don't enable them. Don't feed them. Don't house them. Turn away from them. Withdraw yourself from them, eschew them, shun them, cut them off. If you can't do it, you're no disciple of Christ. Yeah. This gospel we've received, why are we turning so hurriedly from it? Were we ever anchored in it in the first place? I, I watched eight years ago Christians start hashtagging their apostasy. To be liked and accepted on Facebook... They were agreeing with heresy, and slowly by slowly, they agreed with it to be friends with the world. And then they were told they could still be a Christian and hashtag rainbow flags. You can't be, because rainbow flags represent pornos, every sexual deviancy imaginable. He says, they have hurriedly turned aside which I commanded. They have made them a molten calf. He doesn't say anything. He just said, they made a cow. Did you guys not see how I killed all of Egypt's cows? They're going to be hungry now. I've destroyed everything. God totally bankrupted Egypt. He destroyed all their harvest with hail or storms or lightning. There was nothing left to eat in Egypt. God destroyed and humbled that civilization. They worshiped it sacrificed to it and said, these be Elohim, O Israel. God heard it. He's not real happy when people start invoking the name of Jesus on things that are not Jesus. That is the true definition of blasphemy. To take the Lord's name in vain isn't just to cuss his name, which is blasphemous, but to take the Lord's name in vain is to invoke the name of Jesus on things that are not Jesus to call things Christ when they be not Christ, to call yourself a Christian and then live like the devil is blasphemous. It's vain. It's taking his name in vain. He said, These, they have said, this is your Elohim, O Israel, which has brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. 
Now, therefore, leave me alone that my, uh, that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Of course, Moses intercedes, and he, he asks for mercy. Let's jump to verse 25 for time's sake. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, that is literally naked, but also figuratively for out of control. You can tell when people leave the real Jesus because they lose restraint. They act like animals. They become violent. Disgustingly so. How can Christ be anything in anything that's violent? There is no Jesus Christ in anything that is violent. Anything that burns a city to the ground is not God. Anything that gets naked and runs through the streets is not God. He saw the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their own shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? We have to do this every service. Who is willing to repent? You get one choice. You get one shot at this. Who is committed to God? You've all watched this. Nobody tried to stop it. Who's on God's side? Who's on the real Lord's side? And when he said who's on the Lord's side, he instantly declared this be no gospel. This is not Christ. This is not Jesus. This ain't Elohim. It sure isn't Jehovah Yahweh. Who's on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. So now we split the church. You have Aaron's church and Moses' church. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto Moses. And he said unto them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side. Now notice these are priests, but they're not pansies. It really bothers me that they think clergy are supposed to be a bunch of soft-handed, limp-wristed sissies. Well, most in our nation are fat, and they are soft. And they feed themselves on fried chicken to their heart's content and their cholesterol skyrocketing. But in the days of Moses, if you were a preacher, you had a sword and you knew how to use it, and it was to bring revival. Amen. Go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother. You preachers, kill your family if you have to. Oh, that's how you deal with prodigals. You cut them off. If not, you're no preacher. If you don't cut your prodigal off, you're no preacher because the gospel sword is blind when it comes to its justice. Slay your brother. Slay your companion. Slay your neighbor. Now, the understanding is if they're guilty of this sin. You don't do it to the innocent. No. No, no. You bring biblical justice destroys sin. And the children of Eli, Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell on fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. So apparently 3,000 is the number that participated in the apostasy of the cult of the golden calf. Because if there were more, they'd have killed them as well. Now, what's interesting is later the Jews teach that the golden calf, that's the first Passover. So they just, they call the, excuse me, um, the first feast of Pentecost, the first harvest, which is why it is interesting in Acts 2 when the fullness of Pentecost comes, how many get saved? About 3,000. It's just kind of a cool mirror from the judgment of God to the mercy of God. 
For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother. That means make sure you serve God, and if your family doesn't, get away from them and quit harboring a relationship. Quit harboring a relationship. If you truly serve God, consecrate yourself from your brother, from your friend, from your neighbor, from your child, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. You don't have to, if you don't want to, cut off wicked family members, but you're not going to be blessed. Your house is already cursed because you're hiding the unclean thing in the tent of your habitation. Hide that radiation in your lunchbox every day. See how much hair you have in a month. Hide that kryptonite in Superman's backpack. See how strong he is at the end of the week. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Perhaps I shall make an atonement for you. Maybe I'll atone for you, and maybe I won't. <laughs> you could tell he was just about at his wit's end, too. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. And yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin and if not blot me, I pray thee out of the book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people into the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, my angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord and the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. Now notice he says, my angel will go with you. Jump to chapter 33. Now here's where I want to start to transition a little bit. Verse 12. Because one of the things I want to talk about is maintaining the presence of God in our life and in our church. They had a revival going on at that mountain. But sin and false deity and a church split halted the revival. Moses is up there getting instruction from God, getting the, ta- uh, the Ten Commandments on tables of stone from God, and their sin and their desire to follow a false preacher and their desire to follow a false Christ stops the revival and throws a monkey wrench in the plan of God. That's how powerful rebellion is. And you can call it Jesus if you want, but if it stops the anointing, it was never Jesus. If it quenches the Spirit of God, I don't care how much you said God said, it was never God. Because obedience to God increases the power of God in your life. Obedience to Christ increases the anointing on your life. And if you want to say God's with you, but uh, there's no anointing, He's not with you. Oh, I obey God. I'm doing everything God told me to. No, if there's no anointing, you're not in obedience. You're in disobedience. And the Spirit of God is the only thing we have that makes us different, folks. You can say, well, we have the Bible, but it's just a religious book to others if we don't have the Spirit of God to back it up. He confirms His Word with the anointing. So the only thing that makes us different is the presence of God upon us. And the more we listen to false voices, we can tell how much the Spirit of God is dipping if you're paying attention. The more you listen, the more the power dips. The more you listen to false voices, the more the power dips. But the more you do the Bible, the more the power should increase. The more you obey, the more the power should increase. The anointing of God is the only thing we have that makes us different than Kiwanis or the fraternity or the do-good club. That's all we've got. Now Moses makes the same demonstration, the same observation in Exodus 33, verse 12. And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, 
and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Lord, you said you know my name, and I have found grace in your sight. Lord, you say those two things about me. Can you prove it? Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know thee, that I might find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. Previously, the Lord said, that's your people. Now the Lord's Moses is saying, no, Lord, it's your people. <laughs> those are your kids. No, those are your kids. Verse 14, the Lord said, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. This is one of the ways we tell how much we walk with God. How much rest. How, by that we mean peace, not take a break. You can be busy, 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 busy on the job and have peace. You can work 90-hour weeks as an entrepreneur and have peace. But if you don't have peace, God is not with you. You can be a born-again child of God, but if you don't have peace, God is not with you. Hereby you shall know that I'm with you, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. They had a lot of battles to fight, but they still had rest. They had a lot of work to do. They had rest. They had to march everywhere and carry their own weight, but they had rest. You can tell how much you obey God by how much peace you have in your soul. And by the way, peace looks like forgiveness. Peace looks like taking responsibility for your own life. Peace looks like taking your faith and changing the world for other people, not looking for others to change your world for you. We have a whole generation of Christians that just look for a handout. They don't want to do anything themselves. They're not willing to put the hard effort in. They're always blaming somebody else. There's no rest in that because there's no God in that. At some point, you've got to quit looking to everybody else and just cry out to God and watch God bring you up out of your dungeon. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give thee rest. And Moses said back to God, if your presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. Moses was looking for a companion. The Lord said, my presence will be your companion. He said, you've not told me who you're going to send with me. I need evidence. Lord, I, I trust you, but show me that I've found grace. And the Lord said, my presence will go with you. And Moses says, all right, if your presence doesn't go with me, then don't take us up from here because it's not going to work. Why in the world is the church trying to do everything without the presence of God? Why are we trying to start social causes when God's presence is not in it? Why are we trying to start non-for-profits when God's presence is not in it? Why are we trying to jumpstart weird Facebook ministries when God's presence is not in it? You and I have got to become so attuned to the Spirit of God, we can tell when it's on a person and when it's not. You've got to be able to tell when your court, your tank is a court low. You've got to be able to tell when your life is a half a tank low on the presence of God, and you ought to be able to know how to get it filled back up. You ought to be able to tell when you start to get frustrated because frustration means you've run out of the grace of God. When you're irritable, cranky, and crabby, and some of you have lived that way for decades. Walk with God, and he will help clear up your crabbiness. Quit being so shellfish. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, get the presence of God. He'll clear you up. Verse 16, for wherein shall it be known here that I and your people have found grace in your sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? How can we prove to people we've found grace in God's sight? He's with us. Grace is God's favor. Grace comes to the humble. You want to prove to me you're humble? Let's see how much of the presence of God you have on your life. God does not anoint arrogant people. God does not anoint prideful people. 
He will anoint the humble. His presence on us distinguishes us. His presence upon us makes us different. There ought to be a marked difference between us and everybody around us. And if you're not spiritual enough yet to recognize when his presence is on you and when it's off of you, when it's in your home or it's been grieved in your home, you can get there by being around spiritual people. It's very simple. It's just like learning flavors and learning smells and and learning the sound of cars. There's folks who can tell a car by the sound of an engine. You don't know that when you're 10 years old, but you can learn it. Cops have to learn what cars look like from behind by the way their lights are so they can identify cars. You, You can learn this. Just like most of us in here, we know the difference between a McDonald's cheeseburger and a Burger King cheeseburger and a Crystal's cheeseburger. You know by taste test because of experience. Can you imagine being born again 10 years and you don't know if the Spirit of God's on you or not? Likewise, you can recognize when the Spirit of God is on somebody else and when it's not. You ought to be able to recognize when the Spirit of God's on a church, when it's on a minister, when it's on a worship team, or when it's not. You ought to be able to recognize, even on your favorite worship album, when God's Spirit is on song number two, but devoid of song number three. If you can't recognize that, you need to be spiritual and grow up in the things of God. He says, verse 16 again, For wherein shall it be known here that I and your people have found grace in your sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and your people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The presence of God is what separates us from the rest of humanity. And if there is no anointing, there is no separation. And what's the point of doing church? What's the point of being a Christian if there's no separation? What's the point of calling ourselves a Christian if there is no distinction, no anointing to separate us? God doesn't anoint the pagan. God doesn't anoint the politician. God doesn't anoint the carnal singer. God doesn't anoint the lukewarm Christian. God anoints his servants. And once you have ever obtained that presence and experienced it and know his presence to rub on you, you will do anything to keep it. And in one regard, it is biblical to say you must protect the anointing of God. And by that we mean don't sin. Don't go do something dumb. It drains it instantly from you. Thankfully, you can repent, get back in the presence, and fill your bucket back up. But you don't maintain an anointing running with dirty people, and you don't maintain the anointing housing dirtbag pagans. The epistles of John warn us. Let's go there real quick. I'm not done there. Hold your place. Let's read this because I keep hitting on this prodigal thing. Never let a prodigal in your home. Never let a prodigal in your home. Never let a prodigal in your home. Second John, real quick. Verse 7. Many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves, that means judge yourself and your family and your congregation, that we lose not those things which we have wrought or worked for, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abides not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. If any person in your home abides not by the doctrine of Christ, they have not God. Unless they're under 18, kick them out. 
we don't harbor those that mock our God. Verse 8 says, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have gained or worked hard for. How do you lose those things? By harboring God mockers and apostates and antichrists and those that criticize your God and make fun of your church. Why would you fellowship with those people? Have you become comfortable around that kind of mockery? This is the apostle of love talking this way. Short epistle because they didn't want to hear anymore. <laughs> That's not true. It's short for other reasons. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house. You and I have to be careful with who we even let stay at our house during the holidays. Tell them to get a hotel. Receive him not into your house. That means you can curse your house by bringing in folks who don't abide. That means habitually live in the doctrine of Christ. Are you and I that stupid? Apparently, yes. Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed or God bless you. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. That is the word communion. He that bids them Godspeed, he that opens up his house, has communion and fellowship with their evil deeds. Try to be blessed when by proxy you're participating in their fornication and their drugs and their mockery and their antichrist behavior. You just try to be blessed. You've lost the presence of God and don't even know it. Now, I like having the presence of God in my house. We're just used to it so that when we don't have it, we recognize it. When we go somewhere else and it's not there, you recognize it. But I can't help but think, how much has having the habitual presence of God in my house built my family, built my marriage, built my health, built my mental stability, just by honoring the Shekinah glory, the presence, the peace of God? How much is that ministering to me and my kids 24-7? And I don't even realize it. And there are folks that have left it, lost it off their home, don't even recognize it, and you don't even realize your spiritual plane is plummeting to the earth. And you're justified in your mind by that which you harbor in your home. You've become numb to the loss of the glory. We have to be spiritually astute enough to know when I just, I just grieve God. I just quenched his spirit. I just sinned against him. You got to be spiritually astute enough to be able to walk into someone else's apartment and realize there's no God here. There's tension. There's no peace here. There's perversion. There's no holiness here. There's, there's abhorrent behavior. You got to be spiritual enough. You got to be able to walk past somebody and recognize when their head's spinning like a buzzsaw. You got to be spiritual, not goofy, spiritual. And the more spiritual you are, the more stable your life will be. Verse 12 says, Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. Hey, look, kick kids out. You can have full joy again. <laughs> the children of thy elect sister greet thee. Now come back to Exodus. I'm going to finish up here one more verse. You're learning anything. We need to protect the presence of God in our home. Not that it's delicate, because the anointing of God will melt earth away one day. 
But it, is, it must be, I don't want to say nurtured, it must be developed. You can't just go show porn in your house and keep right. the presence of God. Because you'll grieve God and he'll leave. He's not delicate, he just hates your sin. You can't harbor a perverted prodigal in your house and keep the presence of God. He's not delicate, he just hates your rebellion. So he's not going to endorse it. Just like you and I, if we were at somebody's house and they started making fun of us or mocking us, we wouldn't stay there unless we were fools. We'd just leave. We wouldn't even say bye. We'd just walk away. Because nobody's going to miss me anyway because they don't want me here in the first place. Do you not realize that our lifestyle of rebellion tells God we don't want you? You're not welcome. We prefer sin and self-justification and perversion. That's what a lifestyle does. Or when you make a family altar and you teach your children to pray and you honor the house of God and you honor with the tithe and, and you pray and read the Bible at home and you watch clean things on television and turn off things when they get dirty and teach your children right from wrong and teach your kids to be judgy and to judge things by God's word and how to have mercy and pray for the guilty, God will honor that because you've honored him. You're back in Exodus 33, verse 17. The Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. Remember Matthew 7, uh, who are you? I never knew you. Lord, Lord. That's because they were doing golden calf things, calling it Jesus. The Lord told Moses, I know thee by name. Now, 1 Samuel, let's talk about Ichabod real quick as we kind of prepare to land this airplane. If we don't have runway gear, that's all right. We'll just spark it up everywhere. 1 Samuel 2. I, I preach this a lot because I watch the American church embrace dishonor as the foundation of their ministry. I taught very passionately, I should say preached very passionately last week, that Rick Warren, the heretic, who purposely infiltrated the church or inculcated the church with new age doctrine because he couldn't get it in the church any other way with his purpose-driven life and then purpose-driven church. He taught because he learned it from his spiritual father, Peter Drucker, the agnostic Jew who's in hell. All you have to do is YouTube search Rick Warren, Peter Drucker, and you'll pull up all these interviews where where Rick Warren is bragging about his mentor, Peter Drucker, the agnostic, communitarianist Jew, business guru management, Peter Drucker, who cared nothing for God, not even the God of his faith, but he wanted one world order. That's Druckerism. Drucker, because he understood management, marketing, and business, he taught Rick Warren how to market the church to the non-customer, and it's real simple. Ask them why they don't come to your church, then give it to them. And it is amazing. Everybody that followed that pattern has embraced dishonor as a means of church. So what does dishonor look like? It looks like doing things the market-driven way. Doing things based on the local culture. Doing things based on the whims of the people who are lost and on their way to hell. The doctors don't ask the patients, how would you like to be treated today? Uh, whichever way gets me fixed. The mechanic doesn't ask the, the driver, how would you like me to fix your car today? Whichever way gets me running, cheapest as possible, but whatever it takes. Only morons under the guise of reaching people 
and I think their hearts were genuine, they were still just morons, would follow a heretic named Rick Warren and an agnostic God mocker named Drucker to try to take this gospel and merchandise it. But then the prophets did say they will make merchandise of you. So what happens is we teach people that when you come to the house of God, you don't have to honor it. One of the ways we honor it is we keep our sanctuary holy. We don't do secular things in here. I've turned down many secularists that wanted to have a venue or do a dance thing here or do a concert here. Uh, we were careful what we show on the overhead. We don't let our kids just act like banshees in here. We have a playground over there they can act like banshees in. Now, I'm not, it doesn't bother me when your kids run to me. There's a lot of permission for that. But as they grow older, if they're 12 and 13 and they're running around in here jumping over stuff, we're going to thump that. We keep the sanctuary sacred by keeping it holy. One of the reasons we endeavor to dress our very best is as a sign of honor. It is a lame cop-out for the American to say, I don't want to go to church because they expect you to dress up. You're a hypocrite because you'll dress up for a date. You'll dress up for the movies. You'll dress up for your daughter's wedding. You'll dress up for the prom. You'll dress up for the business interview, you hypocrite. But you won't dress up for the house of God. I'm not saying dress like me. Just dress with your best. Because everybody's got something that's better than pot smoking clothes. Most folks come to church looking like they just took a hit. <laughs> and then we honor God by putting holy people on the worship team who aren't actively piercing or gauging or tattooing. To me, that's a dismissible offense. New tattoos, you're done. Gauges, you're double done. You dress like a pot smoker, you're not up there in the first place. We honor God by making his house the most sacred thing of our society. But that's not acceptable to the American anymore. We want this to be the easiest thing we do. So 1 Samuel 2, we teach this passage because God voices his disgust with his preacher, Eli, the priest, and he says, why do you honor your kids more than me? How come we can't escape this prodigal message this morning? I thought we were going to go wokey-dokey. We did. We set that ship out and torched it like a Viking funeral pyre. Huh. He said, you honor your kids and they're dirty. You give them access to my tithe and they're dirty. You give them access to my house and they're unrepentant. And they cause people to stumble. Why do you honor your kids more than me? God hated it. He said, you cause me to change my mind. Your disobedience, preacher, causes me to change my mind about your calling." I thought the gifts and callings were without repentance. Not according to the rest of the Bible. Maybe you should take Romans 9, 10, 11 in context about Israel because it has nothing to do with callings on people. The context is the Jews being grafted back in one day because the gifts and callings are without repentance. But how many Jews will go to hell between then and now? A whole bunch of them. But the gifts and callings. Man, we cherry-pick our doctrines, don't we? 
Verse 29, why do you kick at my sacrifice, 1 Samuel 2, and at my offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and you honor your sons above me to make yourselves literally obese with the chiefest of all offerings of Israel, my people? Wherefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, be it far from me. I have changed my plans. For them that honor me, I will honor. And they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed or shall be despised. It's the same, Greek, same word in the Hebrew. Behold, the days come that I will cut off your arm. That means your lineage and your authority. And the arm of your father's house, that there shall not be an old man in your house. Your house is done. And you shall see all the enemies. You shall see an enemy in my habitation and all the wealth which God has given Israel. And there shall not be an old man in the house of forever. And the, and the man of thine, whom I shall not cut off from mine altar, shall be to consume your eyes and to grieve your heart. And all the increase of thine house shall die in the flower of their age. Uh, Eli just cursed his whole progeny, his whole lineage, children and grandchildren, because he wouldn't obey God. Oh, but it's for the grandkids. You just cursed your grandkids trying to save your grandkids. Why? Because you can't disobey God and expect to help him. Father knows best. Not just a good show from the 60s. It's a biblical law. And this shall be a sign unto thee that thou shalt come upon thy two sons of Hophni and Phinehas, and one day shall both of them die. And I will raise me up a faithful priest, because you're not it, that shall do according to that which is in my mind and in my heart, and I will build him a sure house, because yours is done. And he shall walk before mine anointed forever, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is left in your house shall come and crouch to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and shall say, put me, I pray thee, into one of the priest's offices that I may eat a piece of bread. Anybody left in your family will come bugging for the holy people. So what happens? They go to war. God has already said, I'm done with you. There's more warnings that come forth. Eli heeds none of them. Eli heeds none of them. Eli heeds none of them. Prophets, even the boy prophet says, God said he's done with you. You're in trouble. Oh, the will. And you know what the prophet said, or the priest says? God's will be done. Where's the cry for repentance? There's none. So chapter 4, verse 10, the Philistines fought and Israel was smitten. God has left their cause because their preachers are dirty. The glory that Moses had that proved that they were separate and distinct is gone and they don't even see it yet because they're compromised. As long as Israel stays humble, they stay grace-filled. As long as they stay grace-filled, they stay anointed. As long as you and I stay humble under the law of God, we stay grace-filled. As long as we stay grace-filled, we can keep the presence of God on us. But you just start doing something contrary to God and watch His presence leave you. But you won't see it. Not until it's too late. If they really believed God, they'd have never gone to war. If they really believed the judgment of God... They'd have humbled themselves and repented, but they're still running through the motions like God is with them, like God is with them, like this is Elohim, like this is Jehovah, like this golden cow's Jesus. God is with us, and you don't realize he's gone. And Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tent, and there was a very great slaughter, for there, there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. 
One dirty preacher not only cursed his family, but 30,000 soldiers. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. So then the runs of man, let's jump down to verse 19. Actually, let's go verse 16. The man said unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of that army. And he said, What is done there, my son? And the messenger answered, verse 17, and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. Never happened before. The church couldn't stand. Never happened before. But the priesthood was dirty, honoring children more than God, going through the motions of serving Yahweh, but no, no Yahweh involved. There's been a great slaughter among the people, and your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. And it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God, not even his sons being dead. Many times when prodigals die, you won't even miss them. But even his heart still trembled for God's presence. But he could have had it back if he wanted it. I think maybe he was hopeless in his own sin. Couldn't find a way to repent. That's why the Bible says repent while we can. For you may end up like Esau who sought place for repentance but found none, though he sought after it desperately with tears. Today is a day of repentance. When he heard mention of the ark of God that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck break and he died for he was an old man and heavy, so brittle bones and a lot of lard. The man died because he's fat. If you and I fall off backwards, we don't break our neck. How big was this man? Huh. But the Lord said, you've made yourself obese with my offerings. Their offerings were food offerings in those days. And he had judged Israel 40 years. He, he completes his assignment Horribly. And his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, she's a widow now, was with child near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, she died too. But that was the curse upon Eli. About the time of her death, the women that stood by said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast born a son. But she answered not. Neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. Ichabod, of course, means where is the glory or the glory is gone. Kabod is weighty presence. So ich kabod, it's gone. It's gone. Their lack of honor for God cost them the glory. We're dealing with that today. We're being taught to dishonor the things of God. And I've got to steer us as a church to where we have more honor for God Almighty, for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his word and for his body than anything else. The church is being easily sifted because we've been taught all things matter and all things don't matter. All things are not equal. When we begin to honor children more than God, it'll cost us the glory. When we begin to honor a career more than God, it'll cost us the glory. 
when we begin to honor movements and social causes more than God, it'll cost us the glory. And anything that begins to cause my anointing that God has given me to dip, I cut it off. I have been down that road enough times to know, all right, I'm pushing through a threshold here. I'm about to break through. And if I break through, God's going to be very unhappy with me. I've learned not to push that boundary. Children test boundaries. Mature servants don't. Children, you know it because you raise them. They're testing boundaries. How far can they go before they get swatted? Don't touch that. Okay, please, I touch this six inches away. How about I touch this? You're not saying I touch that. Yeah, if you're 60 and you're doing that, you're a child. <laughs> no, no. You got to know where that threshold is, where if you cross the line, God departs you till you repent. And then don't go near that. Build your boundary about 100 yards back from that threshold and stay there. And anything that comes between you and your God, you remove with extreme prejudice. Whatever child, whatever friend, whatever brother, whatever career, whatever hobby, whatever friendship, it's not worth the presence of God. Otherwise, you're just like everybody else. Otherwise, our church becomes just like every other thing meeting on a corner block somewhere. We can't afford that. The world needs a church or churches full of God's presence. The world needs believers full of light and salt. And if you're living like a mere mortal, you don't have the presence of God. And we know what to do to get it. And we know what to do to maintain it. But are we willing to make the sacrifice to maintain the presence of God? Or, or do we want to just run with those that do make the sacrifice to maintain the presence of God? Because at any moment, they can top us off. And they can pray us out of our mess. At some point, you quit being the burden. And you grow up and you become a burden bearer. Otherwise, you'll live your whole life and never fulfill the law of Christ, which is to bear one another's burdens. But as long as you're the burden, you're really refusing to grow up. Even my children, though they're burdens because they're young, they're looking to help around the house. Please, I help. Please, I do that. Please, I do this. And we're helping them help us as best we can because we want them to bear burdens. I don't get Christians, though, that are interested in always being the burden and expecting us to top off their tank and fix their mess and put their fire out. At some point, you grow up. You pee or you get off the pot. Everybody that we looked at could just go through the motions. Look, we're worshiping Elohim. Look, I'm still a priest. Look, we're still offering sacrifices. God is with us. Hey, look, we're going to war. Grab the ark. That's what we always do. We always win. Going through religious dead motions and not active obedience in sight. Obedience keeps us anointed. And if we have not that presence, what's the point? Now, I won't turn there, but First John, it's worth reading. He says, I, he talks about, you have an anointing, you have an anointing, you have an anointing, you have an anointing, you have an anointing. And I write these things unto you concerning those that would try to seduce you. What do they want to do? Why would they seduce them? To get the anointing off of them. You don't seduce Holy Ghost Christians the way you do pagans. You got to use different bait. But anything that begins to cause the glory of God to diminish off your life, you mark it, you curse it to hell, you turn and walk away from it, and you don't look back. Our life is not our own. Anything in this life that we don't have a covenant with, we can burn to the ground. Career, grown children, 
I have friends that say, I ask them, how are you, how are you handling those kids being so prodigal? We just determined they're going to go to hell without us. One of my preacher friends says, that's somebody else that can go to hell without me. I don't think we realize how real all this really is. Because the way we live sure doesn't seem to testify that we believe God is real and his word is real and his expect expectations are real. And there's a price that's real and a reward that's real. Because we just still keep playing games with God like he understands, he understands. He un no, he understands we're morons and fools and self-justified and mockery. We've got to draw near to God. The world needs a church that still has God's presence. What are you doing? I'll ask myself, what are we doing on a daily basis that dishonors God? What is a lifestyle choice that we practice that dishonors God? We're all going to have these hiccups where we say, oh, Lord, that didn't mean to say that. That's bad. Lord, I, forgive me. I'll, I'll get better. We all have those. But what, is there anything we're still practicing that just daily, weekly dishonors God? Are there any friendships we're maintaining that dishonor God? Come out from among them. Remember, Timothy says, in a great house, there's lots of vessels, some to honor, some to dishonor. In every church, there's dishonorable people. That's what Timothy says. Withdraw from dishonorable people, and you'll be honorable. If that goes among us, how much more are your family outside of here? Would to God we could have relationships with all of our family, but you know it's not going to happen. Jesus said it'll be your family that delivers you up to be killed. Aren't those the lovely words? I receive all the Lord's promises. You should study your Bible a little closer than Christian TV. What are we going to do? Are you going to honor God or honor yourself? I want the presence of God. It does not come cheap. And the world needs us to have the presence of God. And I just wonder if some of us, if we drop some of these weights, how quickly we could rise in Christ if we could ever convince ourselves God knows best when he says, drop the weight. It's our choice, though. We're free will people. I can't believe God would be so dumb as to make us predestined to be this dumb. Are we, are that, are we a reflection of his stupidity? Oh, it's his will that we're this dumb. No, it's not. We're this dumb by choice. I said before you, smart and dumb. Choose smart. No, I choose dumb because I didn't get hurt enough the first time, Lord. Let us choose the anointing of God. Isaiah says it alone breaks the oaks. Marching on D.C. breaks nothing. That's why we don't do it. Plus, we'd have to lock arms with perverts that are demon-possessed, and I have no fellowship with that. But the anointing, the anointing shall destroy the yoke. So maybe the church ought to get a little bit more anointed and we could make a change. Amen? All right.